man, world events, um, they just, well, I feel like we're in some kind of movie, aren't we? Uh, just uh, the way things continue to evolve, um, it's just, it's a wild time uh, to be alive. And that really connects us to our passage. You know, we've been teaching through um, Second Peter, and it's been a great journey. It's been a lot of fun. I've, I've taught, uh, now this, this passage, I taught the passage in chapter two, and really they're passages that I never naturally would have gravitated to. They're not passages that I would have, you know, hey, Chuck, you get to preach, go, you know, preach whatever's on your heart. I, I wouldn't gravitate to them because they're somewhat difficult. They're a little sticky. Um, they have some uncomfortable truths, and our passage uh, this week, as we close out the series, is no different. It can be sticky, and it can be even a little bit uncomfortable. You know, uh, as I was thinking about this passage and just thinking through how to illustrate maybe what's going on here, um, some of you guys know that, uh, that I do CrossFit. Most of you know that because the first rule of CrossFit is the opposite of Fight Club, is if you do CrossFit, you have to tell everybody you do CrossFit. Um, so most of you know, um, so it's no secret. But what you don't know is that I'm not very good at CrossFit, <laughs> okay? Uh, I don't tend to lead with that very often, um, but I'm actually pretty mediocre at it. I'm not that good at it. Um, I'm not, you know, I don't have six-pack abs, you know, and I'm not just a, an incredible person in the gym, but I, I go consistently. And there's this thing in CrossFit that you'll hear all the time, but it's eyes forward, Eyes up, eyes forward. Now, the reason for that, and all the movements you do in CrossFit, we do squats, we do deadlifts, but then we do a whole bunch of gymnastics, like pull-ups and toes-to-bar and bar muscle-ups. I know it's a whole language. Don't worry about it if you don't know it. It's okay. But in a lot of the movements, it's eyes forward. Eyes up, eyes forward. And the reason for that is that your body tends to follow your eyes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody find themselves looking at something intently and find themselves taking steps toward the thing they're looking at? Well, it's true. If you're looking at the floor, where does your body tend to gravitate toward? The floor. If you look toward the sky, you tend to stretch up, right? And so uh, it's a common thing we hear all the time because you can really mess up. You can actually really get hurt if you're looking in the wrong direction. Um, if you're trying to pick a bar up off the floor and you're looking at the floor instead of looking ahead, you'll actually be crunched over to the bar instead of pulling the bar back and looking forward like you're supposed to. Well, one example of that is um, I was, um, we were coming up right now, there's this thing going around the world that CrossFit does every year. It's called the Open and thousands and thousands of people do it. And in the Open, there was this movement called a bar muscle up. It's, anybody knows it's a gymnastics movement where you grab the bar and you pull yourself up over and you get on top. It's a it's a gymnastics move. If you're into gymnastics, it's probably really easy for you. For most of us, it's a really hard movement. And uh, I was really struggling with this movement, and I kept slamming the bar into my belly button, but I couldn't get over the bar. And uh, I did it until my hands were bleeding, like just on top of each other, bleeding. And my coach kept saying, eyes up, eyes up. And finally, he took a picture of what I was doing. And as I was pulling the bar, I was looking down at my belly button. And so I kept slamming the bar into my belly button and then falling off the bar. He goes, man, you could put your, you could put your butt on the bar, but your, your eyes are looking in the wrong direction. And lo and behold, he was right. I put, when I, next time I grabbed the bar, I turned my eyes up toward the ceiling and forward. And I floated right up and over the bar. 
And I think that's a great illustration for what you're gonna see in the passage, is that Peter is looking at this group of people under a lot of pressure, under a lot of tension. In fact, the people in Ukraine might have more in common with who Peter's writing to than we do. Or we don't feel that much pressure. We don't feel much intensity around our lives. Yet these people felt persecution. They felt cultural pressure. They did not always feel safe to gather into worship. They had internal attacks and outward attacks. And Peter comes to them and he's basically gonna say over these next few verses, eyes up and eyes forward. I wanna show you this. I'm gonna read through the whole passage and then we're gonna work our way through it. Look at this in 2 Peter chapter three. Peter says this, now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved or deeply loved ones. In both of them, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, I am stirring up your sincere mind or your sincere thinking by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, mocking, attacking, They're following their own sinful desires and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's what the scoffers say. That's why it's in quotes. But these scoffers, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, loved ones. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one's day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be disposed, what sort of people are you to be in lives of godliness and holiness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, loved ones, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And there are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, loved ones, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Paul said, or Peter says, 
eyes up and eyes forward. And what's he lay out for us? He basically is saying that where your focus is, if you're focused toward the future, if you're focused to the day of the Lord, that's gonna change the orientation of your body. It's gonna change the direction, the way you angle every moment of your life. Or you can be like the scoffer whose eyes aren't forward at all. In fact, they're deliberately focused inward and down. Check, look at these scoffers. This is the first thing that, and Peter's gonna lay this out as kind of the contrast. Look at these scoffers in three, one and two, he says, he's trying to remind you to have this sincere mind, but verse three, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what are scoffers doing? Scoffers are basically saying, live my best life now. Have you heard that, by the way? This is a common thing. You can, you can look at Instagram or Facebook. It's like, I'm living my best life now. I'm, I'm not, you know, it's kind of even watching in movies, right? It's like, oh, don't live in the past and don't worry about the future. Just live, just savor each moment. And there's some truth into enjoying and savoring and taking in and being mindful of every moment that you live in. But actually, what the scoffer is doing, he's saying, hey, grab it, enjoy it, take it, have it if you want it. Don't miss out. And in doing that, they shrug off accountability. They're like, hey, the experience is God. And by the way, this is a very common idol in our culture, experience as God. That to chase it, have it, do it, see it, touch it, experience it. And, and by the way, the younger you are, the more pressure you feel around this. As you get older, and you've either stumbled in some experience or you've chased some experience, uh, anybody older that you know can tell you the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, and the emptiness Everything you do has a long-term effect. Everything. Every choice, every decision, every step you take has a long-term effect. But the scoffer says, no, it doesn't. Don't worry. Don't think about it. Go for it. Enjoy it. Their eyes aren't forward and their eyes aren't ahead. And in the bottom of all of that is pride. Look at what Proverbs says about the scoffer. The scoffer, this is, what, this is what Solomon says in Proverbs. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. That's the scoffer. That means that when they make their decisions, at the end of the day, they're driven by an internal pride that says, if I think it's right, it's okay. My own moral standard, my own moral code, what I feel is good, that's what I'm gonna do. And there's a whole ton of spirituality and philosophy that wants you to believe that if it feels good to you and if it feels right to you, that's enough, do it. And it elevates your own personal sense of autonomy to being God. And the Bible says that's pride and it's foolish 
And yet it's, it's what's being said by these scoffers. Look at verse five. They also ignore history, which is kind of, kind of the struggle for youth, by the way. Older people have a longer view usually. Older people are able to say, yeah, we've seen this before. Yeah, we've seen what's going on here. But youth tends to struggle with the idea that things didn't start with them and with us. I say that because I, I'm not that old yet. I feel like I could still be a younger person. But it didn't start with us. And so they ignore history, and in ignoring history, they ignore God's sovereignty over history. Look what they do in verse five here. Check this out. It says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, long before these people were around, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by what? By the sovereign, we could insert that word, word of God. That by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In other words, there was a world. It was spoken by the word of God. And then this word world was destroyed in the flood. It's a reference to Noah and the flood. God was sovereign when he spoke it into existence. These scoffers had nothing to do with the world they now live in. They are small. And so are you and I, by the way. So the scoffer who says, don't worry about the future, don't worry about history, they deliberately overlook it, don't look in the past, don't look at what's happened, don't look at what's going on, just have fun, do your thing, pursue whatever desires are in you, go for it, you can have it, don't worry about the future, nothing's gonna happen. Nothing's ever happened in the past, and they overlook the fact deliberately that God has actually spoke the world into existence and he judged the world in a flood. Verse seven, by the same, by the same world, word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In other words, Peter says, they are way wrong. They ignore history and the sovereignty of God at their own risk and they're way wrong and there is a reckoning coming now that doesn't that isn't a super feel-good message and and to be honest if you're sitting here and maybe you're not really used to church this is one of the reasons you're not sure you like it if you're sitting in the room today and you're kind of thinking through Christianity and you're wondering about who Jesus is and what's this about and this Bible that they go to and, and you've been told kind of by your friends that it's, it's a, there's an angry God out there and, and he's judgmental, this is what your friends have been talking about. That there's a reckoning coming, there's a judgment coming at the end of days. And if you're not a Christian, this is exactly why you're like, I don't know if I want anything to do with that. These Christian people who believe in that. And I want you to, to, if you give me just a second, and if you know Jesus, I want you to grapple with this too because maybe this is a struggle for your own heart. Justice is good news. Justice is good news, especially for those who suffer. Justice is good news for the wife that's been beaten by a drunk husband. Justice is good news for the people of a small country being oppressed by a bully. Justice is good news for the child that was abused. Justice is good news 
for those who suffer. And Peter knows that because the people he's writing to, it's good news to them. They're like hanging in there. They're trying to follow Jesus. They're trying to do what God has called them to do. They're trying to reach back to doing the things that Peter said in chapter one of being faithful and godly. But they have an oppressor and they're wondering the day, when is the oppressor? When is evil in this universe they live in gonna be done with? And it is good news that one day it will be done with. You get, you get why this is good news if you look at what it says next in verse eight. It says, but do not overlook, and he's thinking, he's talking to the beloved. I love that word and how it keeps showing up. But do not overlook this one fact, loved ones, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. In other words, in other words, beloved, hang in there. You are loved, you are deeply loved. So I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you are deeply loved. That's okay, you can do it. Look to your neighbor. You are deeply loved. You are deeply loved. And God's, what God is doing in his, it is good news, but you're having to wait is what he's saying. God is not slow to fulfill his promise. What's the promise of God? Well, he's kind of getting at it. The promise of God is justice against evil. That's good news if you've suffered. It's good news if you're discouraged by the evil you see around the world. It's good news if you know of evil that has happened in your community. It's good news if you're torn apart by inequities you see in our culture. It's good news if you were bullied when you were coming through school and it really hurt you and friends turned on you and gossiped about you. It's good news for anyone who's experienced any amount of suffering in this broken world we live in. Justice is good news for the beloved. And God is not slow to fulfill his promise. But look at this. But he's not wishing that any, he's patient toward you, but he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, justice is good news. That evil would be done away with, and those who have suffered would be taken care of. But God's patience is good news for the rebel. This is the beauty of God in the gospel. The beauty of God in the gospel is that Jesus can both deal with evil and in his patience and grace, redeem the rebel. It's good news to the one who's been oppressed against and good news to the oppressor that there's a moment, that there's a patient, there's a waiting and a bloody cross that says to the oppressor, you can be redeemed, you can repent. It's the mystery and the beauty of what God is doing in human history where Jesus himself blends the love and the justice of God. Jesus does not overlook sin, but he makes a way for those of us who are rebels to be righteous. Justice is good news for those who suffer, that evil will be done away with, and the patience of God is good news for the rebel. God is holding back the last day so that people who do not know him could repent and come to know him. 
That's why the last, that's why the last day has not happened yet, is what Peter's saying. That right now, you and I, if we, have, if we know Jesus, if we're saved, if we're part of the family of God, we are part of the family of God because God was patient. And he didn't return in the first century. And he didn't return in the second century. And he didn't return in the fifth century. And he has not poured out his justice and his wrath on all ungodliness. That's good news for everybody sitting in the house. Every single person in your chair right now sits there by the grace of God and the patience of God. Because he wanted you to know Jesus and repent. And it's what he wants for everybody else on planet Earth. It's good news. His justice is good news. His patience is good news. Now, how does all that happen in the mystery of God? I can't always tell you. I can't tell you, for example, how Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 hold together tightly with what 2 Peter is saying here. That God both wants all to be saved and also has a divine purpose in how he elects and chooses. That's a massive mystery. Part of the answer is to know that sometimes we read the Bible and it's coming from God's view. And sometimes we read the Bible and it's coming from the way God wants us to relate to him and know his heart. I know this, that God's complex enough and more different than me and more different from you than we can think or imagine. And that he and his complexity and in his sovereignty can both have a heart that wants every evildoer to get what is right and just and through the cross want every evildoer to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And this is why we haven't experienced yet the day of the Lord. It's why we haven't experienced his coming is what Second Peter tells us. So what do Jesus people do in the meantime? What do we do in the not yet? What do we do while we're waiting for evil and unrighteousness to be done away with? And we're waiting for God to come through and to do what he said he's gonna do and, and to gather his people together. What, what are we to do in the meantime, and I think, I think sometimes when we hear this kind of thing, there's ways Christians can sometimes respond. Sometimes we can respond, though not outwardly like a scoffer, but inwardly like a scoffer. In other words, we live our lives as if there's no such thing as a coming day. We, we, we store up resources for ourselves. We plan for our days of retirement. We, we, we live lives that really have no connection to the urgency of a day coming. I, I've done that, I've done, I've done that plenty of times. I battle with that every single day. I battle with it every day, not to be driven by my own internal desire to, to find good food to eat and fun things to do and, and to think about my money in terms of what I wanna do now and 30 years from now with little thought about the urgency of the day of the Lord. We, we, can, we can do that. We can build walls around our family. There, there, there's a, and this is maybe a big theological term, but there's some from a more maybe dispensational background that would say that the world's getting worse and worse and worse. And, and what Christians do is we kind of watch the world getting bad and we kind of pull back and we isolate and we kind of hang on until Jesus returns to whisk us out. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. But we can do that. We can build kind of walls around our families. We can isolate. We can pull back from the culture, we can complain. 
I'm sure there was a lot of that in Peter's day. We can just complain. This isn't good. This isn't right. This isn't fair. Come on, let these, these oppressors, these Romans, let them get what they deserve, God. Come on. Or we can get into the culture wars. We can, we can get into the culture wars. You can do it through your Facebook, your Twitter, uh, all your social media. You can become, you can draw lines in the sand about who you are and what you believe and people who think like that. And you can dehumanize people in the way you talk about people who don't agree with you. You can get into all of that. Is that what people, what Jesus people are supposed to do in the meantime? I don't think so. I think that people who follow Jesus are supposed to live with an urgent intention. I think their believers are supposed to live with an urgent intention. There's four ways that I think this ought to look that I think is here in the text. And I want to show you this. Look in verse 10. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. And verse 11, and since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Okay, so 10 and 11 come together like this. So the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. And by the way, there's two other times in the New Testament that this is really talked about. One is in Matthew 24. They both are all related to the end times, by the way. Matthew 24 says that the end is going to be like a thief in the night. So don't be asleep. Be ready. Be alert. It's not like Jesus is coming to, to steal, by the way. That's not the imagery. It's that he comes in a surprise, that the day of the Lord is going to be a surprise. And so Jesus says in Matthew 24, stay awake. Stay alert. Be, be mindful of the moment that could come any time, right? So, so that's the idea of the, the thief coming. So there's this urgent intention. The thief, it comes, it's gonna be like a thief. So be ready, don't be asleep, be prepared. The heavens will pass away and the heavenly bodies burned up. But what kind of people are you supposed to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I think the first thing out of the four I wanna talk about is we're the kind of people who fight sin aggressively. People who live lives of godliness and holiness. Well, what does that mean? It means we're the kind of people who fight sin aggressively, knowing that every moment we walk with Jesus, every moment we let the Spirit come in, and how do we do it? Pastor Ulysses talked about it in chapter one. We do it with the divine power given to us in the knowledge of Jesus. That as we see Jesus and hang on to Jesus and root our lives in Jesus, then Christ's likeness begins shaped in us through the power of Jesus. We grab hold of everything he's put inside of us for life and godliness. If you lose sight, if your eyes are not forward toward the day of the Lord, it is easy to be lackadaisical about your sin. To, to walk around as if it's no big deal. Or maybe sometime next month, you might share it with somebody so you could get some accountability. But this month, you're just tired. We've all lived in these kinds of rhythms where we're just not urgent. But there's this urgent intention around their sin. You're supposed to live lives of godliness and holiness. How do you do it? With the divine power and the knowledge 
of Jesus. What's the next thing? Well, the next thing isn't actually in the text, but it's in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. That's the other place where um, the end times is talked about like a thief in the night. And what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians is, is that when it happens, this moment that Jesus returns, you need to be geared up for battle, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. But then he says this crazy thing. He says, encourage and build each other up. Encourage and build each other up. So we're supposed to be people who fight sin with urgency, with the power of Jesus, but we're also the kind of people who build each other up that that realize that we're in battle together. And so we need to walk with each other and challenge one another and and say, hey, let's keep going. There's the future. Don't stop yet. We've got a finish line. Let's keep going. The shells are coming. We're being fired at. We're being attacked, but there's the future. Let's go. We encourage one another. We don't do it alone. The third thing, it's here in the text. Look how the intensifying, the urgency intensifies. Look at this, verse 12. We're waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. Waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Do you guys see that? Waiting and hastening. Now, what's, what's that mean? Can we really speed up the day of the Lord? Can we really hurry it along, as the New Living Translation says, hurry up the day of the Lord? That seems kind of wild, and maybe if you know your Bible, you know that the day of the Lord has been set, that God has sovereignly decided when he will return. And that's true. Again, it's that there's a mystery here. And yet God accomplishes all of his sovereign purposes through the people he's called to follow him and obey him. Did you know that? That's why you pray. Why do you pray? Why do you get on your face and pray for someone to be healed or pray that someone will come to know Jesus? Hasn't God already sovereignly decided? He has, and yet in a very mysterious way, he operates in the obedience of his people to do what he's sovereignly declared to do. Did you know that? So that your prayers really matter. You sharing the gospel with someone really matters because God uses what you do in obedience to accomplish what he has sovereignly decreed. It's a mystery, and if you think too hard about it, it bends your mind a few different ways. But it is the beauty. So here you have this crazy thought that somehow we, we hasten. So the urgency is now intensified that we're, we're supposed to speed up the day of the Lord. Uh, another way to say it is we're supposed to want it so bad or ur- urgently desire it, earnestly desire it so bad, it's, it's almost like somehow if we wanted it more, it would come faster. Anybody had a thing like that? That's definitely how I felt about my wedding. And when I, once I got engaged, one, first it was the engagement. How are we gonna get engaged? Every day, when are we gonna do it? When are we gonna do it? How are we gonna do it? Pushing, 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 pressing. It, every moment of my mind was pressed toward that moment. As if I wanted it so bad that somehow if I could push it Harder and faster in my desires, it would happen. Anybody wanted something like that? Cared about something like that so deeply that you're just like, if I just somehow I could speed up the day? Well, Peter says that that's the kind of thing going on here. You ought to be the people who are so intense about the day of the Lord that it would be like you would speed it up. But then I wonder if there's even something more tangible than just our wanting it to be here faster. In other words, I wonder if we looked at the logic of Peter, we might see that there actually is something we can do 
that even scripture might even support and you look in other passages. But why is the day of the Lord being delayed? What do we see? It's being delayed so that people can repent. The patience of the Lord is so that people would come to know Jesus. So if we're a thinker, if we're looking at the passage and we're saying, so if I'm supposed to hasten the day, speed up the day, how do believers speed up the day? Wait a minute, Peter, you're saying that God is delaying so that more people could, be, could come to Christ. So how would I speed up the day? I think it's in this way. It's to be obsessed with the mission of making disciples. Not as a part of your Christian life, not as a good thing to do or to be about, but obsessed as the reason planet Earth still operates the way it does. The reason you still have a job, the reason you got married, or the reason you're still single, the reason you do anything, the reason you still breathe and move is because God is holding back the last day so that some who need to know him would repent. We should be obsessed with that. We should be consumed with that. It ought to be the lens that shapes everything we do and every intent and action of our heart as we move toward Jesus. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Look at this. Matthew 24, 9 says this, and this is again talking about the end times. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. These are the last days. And you will be hated and put, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets, like we saw in chapter two of Peter. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will be increased and for the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this good news, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and what? And the end will come. Jesus says, you don't know when it's gonna happen, but I'll tell you when it's gonna happen when the gospel reaches the nations. When nations, tribes, and tongues get the gospel of the kingdom preached to them. So how do, we, how do we speed up? How do we hasten the day? How do we lean so hard toward the day of the Lord? Seems to be, Peter, saying that the day of the Lord is being withheld so that people can come to repentance. How do you hasten it up? Proclaim the gospel. Make disciples. I'm almost done, and the band can come back up here. Couple more things that I wanna show you. That was the third thing, be obsessed with making disciples. Then I want you to look at the last thing here in verse 13. But according to this promise, what's the promise? The promise of the prophets, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here's the last thing that I think Peter's trying to say. First, he says, fight sin, urgently fight sin with the power of God. Secondly, encourage one another as we head toward the mission. Third, be obsessed with the mission. Be obsessed with proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. And what's this last thing? According to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, here's what I think Peter is saying. 
wait with confident hope and overwhelming, unable to contain expectation for the new heavens and the new earth. There's a lot of ambivalence about the new heavens and the new earth. We are in love with the current world. We are. I am. You are. We love it. We often say things like, you know, I'm going to miss this when I go to heaven. It's going to be, I hope this is in heaven kind of thing. I don't think that's the way they were thinking. They had this waiting of confident, overwhelming expectation for the new heavens and the new earth. And I wonder if it's because we don't have an imagination. I wonder if our imagination is too small when we think about the new heavens and the new earth. I wonder if we think more like the Greeks did, that the new heavens and the new earth was not gonna be with a physical body and we were gonna float on clouds and play harps and sing kumbaya and high five each other with white tunics on. If that's heaven, I don't want it either. It's not heaven. You know, you don't live in heaven. You know that? You live in the new earth with a physical body. Much what smells and tastes and feels and touch, all these things that your neurons have connected to and build affections inside of you, that, that's heaven. It's just the heaven where God's love and his justice has been at work. Look at what Revelations 21 says. And allow the Holy Spirit to stir in you an imagination for the thing you should want more than anything else. The thing you should want more than your next meal, more than your next successful promotion at your job, more than a potential love interest coming through, the thing you should want if you had an imagination for what God has promised to you is what we're about to read. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's, that's where you're gonna live, by the way, and where I'm gonna live. We saw that in heaven, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It was beautiful, it was amazing, it, was, it captured our attention. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, his people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where does tears and death come from? They come from evil, sin, and injustice. And how does every tear get wiped away? Through the justice of God and the grace of God. Flowing through the blood of Jesus. And he wipes every tear. There's no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And Jesus who was sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. Anybody ready to trade in 
the broken parts of your life? Anybody ready to take areas of your life or areas of the culture or areas of the world and say, you know, I'm ready to trade that in for all things new. Anybody want that so bad that you stay up at night going, I'm done. I'm tired with how people get treated over here. I'm tired with how I've been treated. I'm tired of the things I've done out of my own heart. God, come quickly. Trade in all that's broken and give me something new. So this planet I walk in isn't marked at its core by sin and evil, but by love and justice and righteousness. I can't even eat a hamburger without sinful impulses coming through my system. There's nothing you enjoy right now that isn't marked at its core with sin because of our brokenness. And the beautiful image in our imagination of the new heaven, the new earth is every beautiful thing you've ever wanted to experience or touch is unmarked by sin. Peter says, you wait for that. And it marks everything. It's the leaning of your life. It's the edge that you're aiming toward. It's the, it's the way you're moving. And if you take your eyes off that, if you look around or you look down, you're gonna get hurt. You're gonna stumble. You're gonna fall. Because where you look is where you're going. This is the new heavens and the new earth. What I love about that image, it's that image that's put in front of us of a new heavens and a new earth and every evil thing being done away with. That lands in what we're about to move to here in a second, which is the table. You see, Jesus, when he first instituted the Last Supper, communion, what we're about to take here in a second. When he did that, he actually said to them that this intimate meal they were doing that signified the blood of the cross, which is the place where the justice and love of God meet. It's the beautiful mingling of God being right and treating everybody how they deserve and yet offering grace to everybody. And in the moment where he said, this bread is my body and he tore it and this cup is my blood, drink it, it's your righteousness. He says in Matthew, this cup that I'm having with you, my beloved, my best friend, my beloved, you are my beloved. He says, this cup, I will not drink again until I see you on the last day. You know that Jesus isn't taking communion? You and I are. He's waiting with an eager expectation to stand at the end of the day with his people and to wipe every tear and injustice away and to lift the cup and say, Leon, you and I, we're having the cup together today. That's what the table's about. The table is where we rest our confidence in what God has done and what he will do. So much so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 
He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We take the table right now, we're looking at what he's done, but our eyes are forward, they're not down. They're ahead. They're rooted in the grace of God, but we grow with expectation for the future God has promised his people. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna, you have your elements. Fred and the team are gonna lead us in a song. And as they lead us in this song, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take these elements in our hand and we're gonna see that in these elements is the beautiful justice of God, sin paid for at the cross, the righteousness of God given by grace to every one of us who put our faith in Him. But here's what I want. I want us to pray with some urgency that God would grow in us an overwhelming expectation for the future. The kind that would make it impossible for us to walk out the door like we're asleep, which shape everything we do.